This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I don't often talk LRT on this show, not because it's not important, not because it's not interesting, largely because more often than not, it has been so well covered during the day, throughout the day by Scott and Bill. So it's been done. So I generally will steer clear. We do other things on the evening. However, however, there are days when you can't do that. And the reason is because if you're in, if you're doing this kind of thing, there's one thing that's really hard to resist. And that is a little pot stirring, a little dynamite in the paint can, something that just gets people fired up. Well, if you read the spec today or read the spec.com, you probably read my next guest's piece under the headline, put your grow, put, put on your grown up pants, make a decision on LRT. Margaret Shimba is a Skimba is a freelance writer, among other things that she does. Uh, she joins me now. Margaret, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks, Scott, for having me on. Um, congratulations, first of all. You got people thoroughly riled up, which, you know, for anybody who's writing the kind of thing you were doing, you, you succeeded. So that was fantastic. Good for you. Thank you. It's hard to find a new, uh, a new take on this to get people excited about it because we've been talking about it for a very long time. Well, we have been. We have been. And for those who didn't see it, and I would encourage people, whether they agree with you or disagree with you, I would encourage people, I always do encourage people to go read it. If you agree, you'll love what Margaret has to say. If you disagree, you'll vigorously disagree, but that's fine too because then you think through why you disagree. It's all healthy to do this. But your point, Margaret, from what I read, and you tell me if I say anything that puts words in your mouth here, but your point is pretty clear. We shouldn't have a referendum on the LRT. Council has been elected. Council's in position to do this. Council should just get on with it and decide. Am I pretty close to where we're going with this? That's right. We decided in principle that we were going to go for it with an LRT years ago. And we dis- we've discussed it uh, over and over the years since. And it's only now that people are starting to slide off the wagon and find reasons to really put up roadblocks. And it's it's in going forward and trying to make decisions and build something for the future, we can't do that. We can't just keep changing our minds. How much of this whole thing, though, as we get into it, how much of this whole thing do you believe? Because I think there's a lot of people, and I'm on this boat a little bit too. How much do you think this is happening because, honestly, city council, and many of them are the same ones, got so skittish from the stadium debate that was such a mess that now every big decision is going to cause deep consternation and double-guessing and everything else? No, I don't. I think this is actually a sentimental um, animosity towards improving the transit in the system. And uh, a philosophical um, uh, a philosophical antipathy towards, or, yeah, towards um, public transit. So this is not anything to do with decision-making per se. It's not about not being able to make a decision. It's about making, not wanting to make a decision, or the not decision. Wanting to make, not wanting to make a decision. Not, not wanting to make the hard decision that needs to be made. Let me read, let me read you something. Well, not you, you know what you wrote, but let me read the people something that you wrote today. I'm taking a paragraph out of, uh, out of the column you wrote for the spec. Here it is. This debate isn't about building a better system. It's about narrow-minded and dare I say mean-spirited people who are afraid of change and what it will cost them. They refuse to see the potential of such a system because they can't imagine using transit themselves. They can couch it in whatever form they want, but they're not if they're, but they're not using the system and therefore not speaking from any position of informed knowledge. And that really, Margaret, that part, it jumped out at me because we've had political debates forever and ever. You're saying, your opinion is, and I'm sure that it's not yours alone, but your opinion is that this is a, a personal thing. This is a mean-spirited 
viewpoint behind this rather than just a, a political debate? I think it is, and I, and I want to talk about Chad Collins for a second, because this is a man who, when there's been a couple of instances where we've tried to get, we're, we're not we, not we, we in the sense that there's any kind of organization, but there's been a movement to try to get councillors to get more involved in the transit debate by actually using transit. And he refused to use it, absolutely refused that it's not in his system, wouldn't work for him. His life can't accommodate it. Now, that works for a lot of us in the city. A lot of us it doesn't work for. A lot of us it can't accommodate. And yet we have to put up with it and we have to deal with it. So when we've got somebody like that who's obstructing progress and creating, and truly it's going to be a transit wasteland in the East End because of what he wants to do and, and because of his legacy, then I've, it goes to a mean-spiritedness around around a, a segment of the population that I think is particularly seen as maybe unsavory. Unsavory is a strong word, but who uses transit? Low-income people, students use it, disabled people, certainly not the people, not a lot of the people I worked with, they didn't use transit. A lot of, And I worked at a major employer in the city. So, you know, I, I, there's, there's a fundamental way in which we disparage transit and transit improvements that is um, impeding our ability to make a, a good decision on this improvement. Margaret, how do we distinguish then, because we have a lot of political debates in this city. Now, this one is obviously the hot-button issue right now. But again, I use the stadium as an example. Before that, the Red Hill Creek. There's been other ones. How do we then distinguish, when we say mean-spirited, between determining that it's a personal thing or a mean-spirited thing, and the other side is just someone who vigorously, for whatever reason, disagrees with you. They don't hate you. They don't hate the idea. They just don't agree with the concept. How do, okay, where's the distinction there? Okay, so for me, the distinction is is when people on the up on the mountain say, what's in it for me? This isn't going to improve my transit. Okay, that to me is at the heart of a mean-spirited attitude around, I don't get anything out of this. And they refuse to see that by freeing up all of those buses that ride up and down that route every day to go into other and deploy them in other areas of the city, that that's going to improve transit for them. So there's this way, there's this way in which we've built a, an upper-lower city uh, animosity between us spending, uh, us, I'm in the lower city, and I will benefit from, from the transit. Now, uh, the improvements in the transit. Now, I would really love to see something up on the mountain, too, because it's it's huge need up there. This is what we've got right now, and we have to start somewhere. And we're fighting about where to start. And, and the, the no side is a no side. It's not a let's talk about this and find a solution side. It's a no side. It's a no, we don't want LRT. And I think I heard Donna Skelly coming on today or said something about, you know, this has to stop right now. It has to stop immediately. And, you know, I, I'm wondering, is this a person who's ever used the system, ever had to depend on it? And because because they perceive that they're not getting anything out of it, because they perceive that perhaps there's not going to be any, any economic benefit. Well, who knows if there's going to be any economic benefit? I mean, if we could predict that kind of uh, spin-off from things that we do, then we, we wouldn't be searching for the magic cure all the time. But what we do know is that the LRT is going to move people from one end of the city to the other. It's going to free buses up off the street and move them to other areas of the city. And if you can't see that, then I don't understand 
I don't understand what you're looking at. I don't understand your logic. What about the idea, and you mentioned them, and, and I uh, g- good for you for bringing them up also in this piece, because I find often, Margaret, that when we have people who are on either side, they try to leave out the uncomfortable or inconvenient parts of this story. So good for you for bringing it up. But what about the business people along the way? Uh, and if they disagree with the idea, if they are fearful for what it's going to do for their business, do they... Are they also, are they mean-spirited if they say, I don't want it because I'm fearful that my business will collapse over the next seven years? So, I struggled over that word, mean-spirited, and I, you know, I had a little bit of angst about it. I didn't want to put anybody's nose out of joint. But the impetus for this column was when I walked into a local business, and it was a big no LRT proponent. I still used their business. I still had to do what I needed to do. But I read the material that was there uh, that they had on the counter talking about, and I can't recall what it is off the top of my head right now, and I didn't bring it back home with me. However, what I got from it was that this is entirely self-serving. This is entirely about what about me and what's it going to cost me. Now, it's couched in words around big thinking about this and that, and we don't know this, and we don't know that, and we can't tell this, and we can't tell that. But you know that they're on the route. It's it's going to affect them. And are they talking from a position of object of objectivity? Do they want what's best for the city, or do they want what's best for themselves? Now, that's the question that we have to ask ourselves, all of us. Do we want what's best for the city, for all of the city, or do we want what's best for ourselves? And it just so happens that this is where the LRT is being proposed. It's unfortunate that the lower city gets something yet again, we have to do this stuff incrementally. And if it would be great if we could come up with a fabulous way to go up and down the escarpment. But nobody thought about that when they put the uh, Red Hill Expressway in and why there isn't public transit built into that. See, I still so like the, the idea of cable cars. <laughs> I think, you know, and we'd have to do something to differentiate ourselves from everybody else. I mean, we lose that in our opportunity here in Hamilton. We lose the chance that we get continually by our environment to create ourselves as something different. Do and you believe, so, no, are you, are you of the opinion, are you, because this whole thing is about a referendum. That's what started this is make a decision. You're, you're, you're imploring council to actually just make a decision. Are you of the opinion that there is ever a time or a place for a referendum on any issue or, or, or quite frankly, we've elected council. So make your decision. So this is an interesting question because it goes to like voter turnout and what the decision is and who's making decisions on what their representation is. And, you know, we're thinking, when I think about referendum, I think about the debacles of the past, you know, Quebec referendum, the Brexit referendum that was just recently, you know, and, and oh, and the Colombian FARC referendum that they just... The know, P- yep, the peace referendum, yep. You know, all of these referendums, um, you know, we elect these people to, to make decisions, make the decision and move forward. Because I'm, I'm not sure that when we're splitting hairs, because it's never a, a big win on the other side. It's always like a 50 to 49 percent vote. And where is where is that? Where's the consensus building and the going forward of that? It's a great it's a great question. And, and I'll be honest with you, Margaret, and it's not just with this one. I have no idea 
honestly, and I'm going way off topic here, I think, but I have no idea why it seems that every single issue, every single vote, every single election now, no matter where you are, Canada, the States, is always razor thin, as you say, 51-49. When did it happen that we became so divided, but perfectly divided, like right down the middle? Right down the middle. We're so polarized. It's, it's uncanny. So it's, it become, I mean, it's a very, I, listen, I loved your piece. I thought uh, whether people agreed with it or whether they disagreed with it, the point of something like this is to get people thinking and get people talking. And again, I, I, I think you would probably agree. People are going to disagree with you, but if this spurs some conversation, great, let's have the discussion about it. And I don't talk about this stuff all the time, but you, you did a great job. And I wanted, to, I wanted to bring you on because of that. Just before I let you go, I want to ask you one more thing, and you mentioned it, because... I ask all kinds of people this all the time because I'm fascinated by how we fix what I was just talking about. There's no doubt, and we've talked about it on this show many times, there is no doubt we have a mountain lower city divide, a suburbs inner city, a core whatever. I mean, we the upper city and the lower city council on council clearly in most votes is divided. So I've asked a lot of different people and I've given my opinion. What would be your idea? If you could re if you could fix something, if you could change something, what would be your idea for how we fix that? Cuz clearly it's not being fixed as it is. Oh, thank you for asking me that question. Oh. So get But you only have 30 boundaries. seconds. <laughs> get rid of the ward boundaries and make it so that we elect representatives for the city of Hamilton, not for bo- not for particular wards and bring in term limits. Two ideas that I think actually would get a lot of support if uh, if that was put to a vote. Margaret Schimba, I really appreciate you doing this today. It was a great piece. People should go and read it. Again, whether you want to agree or whether you want to disagree, at least read it and then formulate your thoughts on it. That's what good columns are going to do. Margaret, I appreciate you taking the time tonight. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's one of those. She wrote something today that was exceptional because of that. She did a very good job of getting people fired up one way or the other. And you are fully entitled to disagree with Margaret. I think she would say the same thing. You are fully entitled to say, no, I disagree that someone who disagrees with the LRT is mean-spirited. I'll be honest, I have a hard time with the idea that if you have a political disagreement that it comes from mean-spiritedness. I know what she's saying. I have a hard time with that, but that doesn't mean it's not worth reading. It's very much worth reading. It's on thespec.com again. It's in the paper. Go take a look. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You are probably familiar with the name Gary Barwin. Not all of you will be, but many of you will know the name. He is a Hamilton author. He is the producer, the writer of many books, I think 20 now, something like that. His latest is called Yiddish for Pirates, uh, and it is winning him enormous, enormous acclaim. Let me tell you, he is a finalist for the Giller Prize. That's about as big a deal as you can get. Today, he was nominated for the Governor General's Award for Literature. That's up there as well. This is all very heady stuff. I'm sure if there are more prizes to be had, he will be nominated for those as well. Now, just before we get to Gary, what is his book about? Let me tell you. I'm going to read from Amazon.ca in their pricey about it. They call it a hilarious, swashbuckling yet powerful tale of pirates, buried treasure, and a search for the fountain of youth told in the ribald philosophical voice of a 500-year-old Jewish parrot. And I know what all of you are thinking. Another one about that? 
No, no, that's the, it is a truly uh, amazing book that is getting unbelievable reviews, and Gary Barwin joins me now. Gary, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on uh, all these awards. You must just wake up every day now and say, oh, come on, don't bore me with another nomination. There's just too many. Oh, yes, and I, I practice swanning about, you know, <laughs> about the whole thing, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've been honored with awards before, maybe not to this kind of level, but d- does it still surprise you when someone calls up and says, hey, guess what, you're nominated? Oh, no, absolutely. And then the idea that, I mean, it, it's, it's, of course, lovely to, to be nominated, but the idea that it brings readers to the book is so remarkable to me. I'm so, I, I mean, I think the award is, is I mean, it's sure it's, it's really nice and it's a great honor, but it also means that that many more people get to read my work, which that is so incredibly gratifying to me. Oh, and you didn't point out that if you win, you also get a hundred thousand bucks, which isn't a horrible thing to you know oh, as, as a oh, bonus. That, yes. <laughs> no, I mean absolutely. That's I mean that's amazing. I mean, of course, it's great in itself, but I mean it's just it. One of the things that's nice about it, even if you don't win, it, it is just saying we think this is really important. And Absolutely, we really value writing, and so even if I'm in that game, it means that my work is um, is thought about like hundred thousand dollars worth. I mean, in the sense that I just mean that people people are thinking about the work and other readers are, and that's yeah, that's a lovely thing for me. Absolutely. How did you find out, by the way? Because the Giller, I mean, I say, I, I I don't think there's a bigger prize in Canadian literature, maybe, but not that I'm aware. So how do you find out? How did you learn that you were nominated? I actually got a, I was actually in the middle of teaching, and um, I snuck a look at my cell phone around the time, and I got a, a, I got a tweet from uh, my editor, and then, uh, then another fellow writer who's in the next room burst in and congratulated me. And it began to dawn on me, perhaps, that um, I might have uh, been nominated. I'd like to, if we can take some time here, I'd like to talk about writing a bit, because I think a lot of people, and and you're in a unique position now as someone who obviously has done this very, very well. A lot of people, I think, at one time or another have thought about, you know, I'd like to write a book. And then they sort of realize, you know what, I have no clue what I'm doing. So I, I want to go back with you. The concept, it seems to me, when you're coming up with a book, the idea, the story would be the most important part to get started. How did you come up with this? Because it is really, really very unique. How, how did it dawn on you that I'm going to write about this? Well, I, what I would say is that it doesn't, it, the idea doesn't come all at once. You have some beginning idea, and then you start writing about it, and you see where it goes, and then uh, another idea occurs to you, and then as you're writing it, and then that, then you follow that, and it gradually emerges. I don't, I'm not a kind of writer that knows everything in advance. I just try and follow what seems interesting. I always talk about, you know, the little song about the bear goes over the mountain to see what he could see? Okay. I'm that kind of a writer. I start somewhere, and I see what I can see, and when I get to the top of the mountain, I look out and see what seems interesting next, and I follow that along, and then see what implications are for the story. What, where, what can it take, you know, what, what can it bring me? Where can it take me? Um, rather than sort of knowing everything ahead of time, I like to um, let the writing, the, the, the kind of the intelligence of the writing, of, of writing itself guide me. I always think the writing knows more than, than I do. For me, I mean, I did know a few things when I started. I knew that in 1492, uh, Columbus went to the Caribbean. I knew that Jews were expelled from uh, uh, Spain in 1492, um, and the Inquisition. So that was kind of intriguing. I knew that I, historically there had been some Jewish pirates, not quite at this time, but that was sort of an interesting idea. Um, 
there was a guy who um, was a rabbi, actually, in Amsterdam who kind of came out of retirement to become um, a pirate. And in what I think is a very kind of Jewish move, uh, he went, um, he came out of piracy to rescue some books, which I thought was just really, really fascinating and very funny. So was that the nugget then? That the, Those items become the, okay, I'm going to write something about these things, and now we just got to figure out what it is we're going to do with it? Yeah, and so I started saying, okay, I'm going to write a Jewish pirate story. Okay, well, what, <laughs> what is that going to be? You know, what is that? Okay, I'm going to use Yiddish because that's going to be funny and interesting and add energy. Okay, now who's going to tell the story? Well, if it's a pirate story, oh, I know. Um, a parrot could a parrot could be the narrator because a parrot is like the GoPro sitting on the shoulder of the pirate, and he could tell the story because he's there, and that would be kind of interesting. And, you know, parrots um, pick up the language around them, and it'd be funny to have this old man... Jewish parrot guy sitting there telling the story. So then, you know, I mean, as each that's what I mean, as each thing, um, you start with one idea and then something else occurs to you and then that's interesting and then you just follow it along. And do you start, when you, when you look back at this book, do you, was the first thing you wrote, was it the beginning of the book or did you start in the middle somewhere and then you work back and figure, okay, here's how I'll start it. Like, are you a sequential writer or did it, was it chunks of pieces here and there? Um, sort of both. I guess what part of for me what's really important is finding the voice, finding how the narrator sounds or what the world of the book is. So I wrote a bits and pieces, just just bits and pieces, just to get the sound of it. And then I started at the beginning. And in a way, the introductions are so. Let me tell you, what is this about? It's about um, you know, Jews, jewels, uh, the Inquisition, your filter fish, a girl. It's like, oh, okay, that's what it's about. And I just kept following that. The kind of voice of the parrot sort of told me, and I just led me from the beginning. And then I knew I had a number of things. And the other thing I knew, if it's a pirate story, there has to be treasure. So I had to figure out what would <laughs> yeah. the treasure be, and how would they look for it, and how to make that an interesting, um, interesting story. Do you? Do these thoughts come to you? often? Like, are you lying in bed and you have a notepad beside your bed and so you've got the next ideas for your next 15 books already written down? Or are these, honestly, are they light bulbs going on and you say, man, I've been waiting for eight months for the next idea to come and this is it? No, I I don't, um, um, I don't, yeah, I mean, I think of, I think of things all the time that I'd be interested in doing um, and I pursue some of them, but you know, some really really helpful writing advice that I, I was told, and I think it's true, which is if you think you've only got one idea and you have to look after it like it's a, a tiny little bird, you know, and you'll keep it close to you, and if somehow you don't nurture it properly, it'll die, and that's the end of your writing life, as opposed to, well, okay, if you have one idea, you'll have another idea, and it'll, you know, that you just have to figure that it's about us being in a state of receptivity, of creativity, and you can just kind of make up ideas. You can just, like you're a jazz musician, you can just improvise and come up with things will just come to you. Um, rather than being worried that, you know, your muse will depart, this, you know, this wisp will, will evaporate and then you're, then you're sunk. So then what happens? Are you, are you the, uh, the subject of massive creative bursts and you will sit there and pound away for 15 hours while the mood strikes? Or are you Mr. Discipline who says every day I've got to do four or five hours of writing to get this done? Well, I write all the time, and I can't sort of can't help myself. I sort of I'm on my way somewhere, and then I end up sitting down and writing something. I, I do that, but to write a novel, novels are long, and it's hard, and it, it'd be easier just to say, okay, I'm I'm I don't know what's going to happen next. I, it, this is a challenge. I'm just going to walk away. So, in to write this novel, I actually 
did have to discipline myself. I made a minimum word list. I had 500 words I had to do a day, and I made charts, and I did all this stuff like I was on some fitness program just because <laughs> I had to keep I had to keep going. And in fact, actually, on the subject of fitness program, I actually got a treadmill desk. I walk on a treadmill. I mean, I kind of think if, if I don't get any good writing done, at least I take <laughs> off some exercise, right? That's but, true. That's true. It helps just to, part of it is just to keep moving and keep flowing and just to keep trying out things. Um, so, yeah, so I did that and I had these charts and I kind of just had to get, just, I knew that I just had to get to 500 and that helped me just keep going and not, not sort of run away and, I don't know, hide under the bed or whatever whatever I would do. You mentioned, though, that it's hard work to do a novel. I've never tried to write a novel, mostly because I've been so daunted by the thought behind it. And one of the big issues is you start dropping in new characters and new streams of a storyline that branches off here or there. And I just think it must be a... I mean, how do you keep track of everything so that by the end of the story you can tie up all the loose ends and you remember, I mean, is your office or your writing space, whatever it is, just plastered with sticky notes to keep track of everything that's going on? Or can you remember that all in your brain? I did have the experience writing this book. I was writing a character and go, oh my God, uh, two years ago she was pregnant. I forgot. <laughs> you know, what, what happened? So, yeah, that stuff does happen, but I, I do kind of, like I like to improvise and make stuff up, but then I kind of take notes as to what take stock of where I'm at and what you know what's going on. And so I did make I did make charts and lines of, of plot um, you know, plot lines and and I made different ways of writing it out. Sometimes sticky notes, sometimes drawings. Part of it was also to trick my way, my trick myself, and to keep keep keeping fresh a fresh way of thinking about it. But yeah, I mean, I had to remember. I mean, mostly remembered, but just to sometimes to write something out that you already know, even just makes it that much more real. And so, yeah, that helped me. Just I didn't know what was going to happen, but I wrote down what did happen, and then that might suggest what could happen. I don't know what your confidence level is as a writer during the process, but is there any point along the way? Because you're one of the things about being a writer, especially what you're doing, you're kind of locked into a room doing your own thing and no one else knows what you're doing except for you. And so I'm wondering, Gary, if at any point along the way you've been working for a few weeks or whatever, does the thought ever cross your mind? Ah, crap. I don't know if anyone's ever going to want to read this. I don't even know if this is any good. Does it, I mean, do those kind of doubts ever set in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I guess that's what I meant, that writing is hard. That was the part, for hard, the part that is hard for me is just to keep going, to to um, trust that pushing this enormous train along is going to is going to get somewhere. I must, I have to own up to sometimes my daughter would come home from school, though, and she's, Dad, you're laughing at your own jokes again. <laughs> you know, I'd be like talking to the characters and I'd be laughing at them. Can I write that? Oh, yeah, sure. So that part, I, I can do that. That'll be great. And so that part was really, that part is fun. Like once you're in the flow, it it um, it's exciting, and in a way, the book is your companion. The book is re- you're responding to the book, and you have this dialogue. But you have to keep doing that when, even when, yeah, even when you hate it and you think it's stupid and all of that. So that's why I had those word, um, those goals to reach, just so that I could feel that I was I was able to keep at it, like 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 a well, like a diet, right, or a fitness program where you want to give up just because it you get to um, sticking points that you just you know you want to go back to your old ways. At what point do you pitch something like this to a publisher? Did you go beforehand and say, here's my idea, or do they say, we're going to need to see something about a 500-year-old Yiddish parrot before we're going to buy this? I mean, what, when does that happen? Um, yeah, because usually publishers, they don't, want to, they don't want to know until it's done. I had an agent, and I was actually, lucky enough, I had uh, 
shown a friend of mine a little bit of it, and she ran a magazine, and so she published the magazine, and then she ended up letting her agent know about this excerpt in the in the magazine, and the agent um, said she was interested in the book. She thought it was interesting, and I should talk to her when I was um, finished. And actually, that was kind of great, knowing there was a place somebody waiting for it. Um, not that they had a that they were going to publish it, but just that they were interested in seeing it. So I so as soon as I finished it, I sent it to the agent, and then the agent started. Um, taking it to different publishers and trying to um, try and talk them into publishing yet another book about a 500-year model Jewish <laughs> speaking parent. doesn't matter how many times you say that. It's still funny. I'm sorry. Yeah, it really I is. <laughs> did you Do you know as a writer with what you're doing, maybe one of the hardest things, did you know when you were done? Because that's often the hardest thing is to wrap it up. Did you know, okay, I'm finished? Or did you keep tinkering and finally have to f- convince yourself to stop? In this case, I did only because it was really um, directional. They were going to, they were looking for the fountain of youth, they were looking for treasure, and so I knew that the book would end when I basically got to that point. So, in a way, it was um, one way of writing a novel is having a, that basic art. Um, mostly, as I said, I like to just kind of wander around and explore what seems ex- interesting and exciting, but for this, I knew that there had to be this really clear ending. Then I, I mean, I certainly went back and fixed it and took bits out, and then I showed my mom read some of it, and she was like, ah, this is really nice, Gary, but um, that middle section. And so I went back and I shortened it and I made it, made it much tighter. And I Do you deal well with that stuff when you have editors who say we need to fix something, or is this your baby and your masterpiece, and it's kind of hard to let them say that? Um, oh, um, I like even negative attention. No, I actually <laughs> do. I just do like talking about it and thinking about it and seeing how I can make something better. I mean, sure, I might momentarily feel um, sad because I, I think as a writer you alternate between thinking you're the greatest thing in the world and you're the worst thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, you and do. So you know, I mean, fair, I mean, and, and you know, you know, as a I've written long enough, I know kind of how I, how what I'm like, um, and how I would might swing from that. But having someone you know give some uh, uh, criticism, I find really interesting from you know so, uh, their their response, and I don't necessarily. Um, do what they suggest, but I think about the part that they're talking about that they've identified as an issue, and then I try and think about what is the best um, solution. So I actually really love the process of editing and changing things and making it um, uh, just working to make it to make it better. To really think, thinking hard about things that I hadn't thought about before. So when you submitted when you submitted this work and the publisher mm-hmm. had a chance to read over it the first time, did he or she days after you gave it to them say, you know what, Gary? This is going to be a hit. And if they did, did you believe them? I, I don't think that they did. I think um, they. Um, my, my, I know that my um, uh, my agent told me after after we after we had it accepted. She said, "You know, I knew this was either going to be a a, a really you know good thing, or I knew, or it was going to be a tremendous mistake." And I don't <laughs> think she quite knew because it was. That'll build your confidence. Hang tight. It's either going to be a flop that'll ruin your life or it'll be fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But when it, when it happens then, and when you see the response that it's received and the critical acclaim and everything else, uh, it it must be, I would guess a mix then somehow between huge excitement, but also incredible relief that all this work actually amounted to something. No, I absolutely. And I really do feel, um, as I said, I feel really grateful that there are readers and people have come up and spoken to me about it um, and somehow it connected to them. And I find that just incredibly touching. I've had, you know, old 
old Jewish men and old Jewish women come up and tell me stories and talk to me in Yiddish and tell me jokes. And I've had young people come up and, you know, just talk about it and, you know, and, and talk about books that they've, other books they've really liked and how, how this one connects to that and how they, so all of that has been, um, just so unbelievably gratifying. Just, I mean, the idea of having, you work on this thing for a long time and then you send it out into the world and somehow it connects to people. I mean, that's really what I'm most hoping to do with my writing and when it happens it's 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 a yeah it's very moving very touching you know what Gary one of the things that I've always wanted to ask and I've asked a couple of them but as singers especially singers who have written a hit song mm. is I've always thought that it's a fascinating thing that I'll never experience to be up on stage singing and have a crowd singing my song back to me and I got to believe that when with with what you've done, when you put out a book that really resonates with people, it's got to have. It's not obviously they're not standing up reading it to you, but there's got to be some of that same thing that I've done something that has really clicked with the people that I've been going after, and there's there's got to be something very fascinating about that feeling. No, absolutely, and you know, at a certain point, I mean, I know this sounds sort of um, coy to say this, but it doesn't feel like this is me. It's this. It really feels like we're connecting over this third thing that neither of us, that we, it feels like the book is out there and it's the book and it's the characters. The way maybe a singer thinks it's not them, it's the song that they're singing and people, and they, and we connect in our way over this song. It really has that feeling to me because it's the thing in itself now that I'm, now that I'm done. I mean, I know I, I know I wrote it, but it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like that. It feels like it's just, it's become its other thing that has its own identity, especially the, the more people um, take it on as their own. As they read it, and then they have their response, and so that's part of what that goes as part of the book that I didn't make. That's what they made. Well, I know that you've spent most of your time for the last number of weeks just going around from honor to honor. But have you have you are you working on your next one yet? Has anything started yet? Has the next idea clicked in your head yet? Um, it, it has actually. As soon as I finished this book, I go, "Oh man, now I'm going to have to write another one." <laughs> I, I mean, that's both a sense of of um, dread, but also great excitement. Like this was amazing. What a great experience to jump into this world for three years and then, you know, uh, and, and then come out of it again. So, um, yeah, I am. I'm one of the things I've been looking at, I've started writing some things and I've done lots of research. I, um, found out that, um, I knew, knew that Germans and people from central Europe really were into Westerns. They love, they love Westerns from, uh, 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 they still they still do, and I discovered further that um, that Hitler, he he also really loved westerns, and in fact he would tell some of his generals he would talk about when they were in a tough spot he would talk about um, what these characters in westerns did and what sort of indigenous people did, and I found that so mind blowing that Hitler would be interested and see as heroic indigenous people. So that seems like there's something there that seems really interesting to explore. I don't know exactly what, but it's going to be some kind of Nazi version of a Western vessel, <laughs> I don't know, something. Going from the Yiddish parrot pirates to the uh, Nazi Westerns, I, I am I am eagerly waiting for the next one to come out. It's uh, It already sounds like it's something that I definitely want to read. Uh, Gary Barwin, uh, re- congratulations. When do all these events happen, by the way? when did the, When's the Giller coming up? The Giller um, comes, uh, the, there's a uh, gala that's November 7th. Actually, in Toronto, it's a very glam thing. I, I hear I get a stylist 
and they dress me. So, <laughs> so finally, I can go out in public. Well, we are <laughs> certainly rooting for you with that one, and we are certainly hoping that when you win, because I'm not even putting it as an if, when you win, <laughs> you'll join us in studio here the uh, day or two after that to uh, for a bit to, to chat about it. Oh, that would be marvelous. Thank you. Gary Barwin. Hamilton, right now, i got to say, Hamilton's best author. There's no way to argue against that with uh, with everything that's happening. Gary Barwin, congratulations and thanks for the time tonight. Yeah, well, thanks so much. Uh, you can go and uh, get his book. It's online. It's in, like in an e-book. It's, um, it's in real books. It's called Yiddish for Pirates. Um, just getting unbelievable reviews. Hamilton guy, good for him. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. National Post had a really fascinating column, a really uh, thought-inspiring column this week by Michael Dentant with the headline, Do Something or We'll Have the CBC and Nothing Else. Basically, it argues that in a difficult media world, because you know what's been happening around in the media with layoffs and cutbacks and places closing and everything, allowing a heavily taxpayer-funded service to gobble up advertising dollars that might have gone to private sector media outlets, radio stations, TV stations, what have you, possibly even newspapers. Uh, He's saying it's unfair competition. In other words, private media businesses are paying taxes to a government that then uses some of those tax dollars to help its media company, the CBC, compete against those private corporations, thereby hurting their ability to compete with the government-sponsored one. Here's a piece of what Deb Tant wrote. He wrote, Dentant, the mother court receives $1 billion annually in federal subsidy. Its its funding is waxing, courtesy of the Trudeau government. It aggressively sells advertising, indeed stomps with gigantic feet all over the national ad market in competition with industry. How long, given these enormous structural advantages until the CBC is the only game in town, and how healthy will that be for Canadian democracy and taxpayers? Well, Sue Prestige is not just the head of the Mohawk journalism program, which is reason enough for her to be on this evening, as we've had her before for journalism issues, but she's also someone who's worked for the CBC. So she is able to see this from both sides. She has an interest in a healthy journalism industry because she's got students that she is helping, that she wants to be able to have jobs down the road, but she's also someone that appreciates the CBC. Sue joins me now. Sue, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you, Scott. Great for, to be on the program. So right off the top, does he, does the writer, does Michael Dentant have any kind of point? Is there unfair competition going on right now between CBC and the rest of the media world? Well, I think that this is a really, really old argument uh, because we hear it every time, and we've heard it for years, that the CBC should not be bidding on large items such as the Olympics. Uh, the argument being from the private networks that we uh, basically are seeing a publicly funded television network or media organization using taxpayers' dollars to bid on uh, something they could bid on. Here's the upshot to that. (laughs) The Olympics are not a big moneymaker, and a lot of the other networks slowly but surely have been backing out of that. If you uh, remember correctly, CBC has the next two Olympics. However, those same Olympics will be seen on TSN and CTV, and it will be doled out to several different networks. It's not a huge moneymaker. So that kind of dies on the vine. The other thing is that 
the ad revenue and the ad rates for private networks are usually much higher than the CBC. Now, why is that? Well, it's because they also pull in, the private networks, a lot of uh, American shows, which are highly popular, so they can afford to charge those rates up the line. Um, Everybody is suffering from, you know, watching what has been going on with the media. CBC has faced layoffs. Uh, That's why I think his argument falls apart a bit. He's acting like, well, the Trudeau government is giving them all this money, et cetera, et cetera. They were, over the last eight years, they were probably ravaged to the point that, you know, to try to stay on the air would have been a nice thing, but. Well, it, let, let's, I mean, here's the thing about it that, well, I'm going to stop. I'm going to back right up for a second. Do you think, first of all, even as we get into this, and maybe this should have been the first question I asked you, do you think most people outside the media bubble, do you think most people care about this kind of thing? Do you think most people look at what's going on with the media and see the reduction in coverage, the reduction in choices, and say this is a real problem, or are they saying, no, I can get the same stuff, anything anything I want for free on online, so who cares? Well, I think that that attitude is growing. It's it's quite in you know it's quite uh, interesting when you talk to people and say, well, I can get my media for free online, and then you say, okay, where do you think those stories came from? Did they come from organizations, professional news organizations that paid people to go out and do that? What happens if those organizations fall apart? Who's going to go out there and do that job? And so I think sometimes that, that's get, that gets lost in the message. Uh, when people say, oh, it's great, it's free, I can get it anytime I want online, I don't need to support my local newspaper, I don't have to, you know, watch a particular network, et cetera, et cetera. And if you know, you know, I know you're going to bring it up, but also when you have the heads of major newspaper organizations going to Ottawa saying we should be funded, we should get some kind of relief from the government because look what's happening us, to us in the media. And then you have, you know, representatives of an online service like Canada Land saying, well, wait a minute, you know, we don't get any, you know, uh, help, financial help, and we're doing quite fine. Well, they crowdsource, right? And so they have individuals, and I'm not, I don't think corporations at this point, but they have individuals who are pledging so much on a monthly basis to support that organization. Would that work with a major newspaper? I don't know, but I'm sure there's a lot of reporters out there who are just almost gagging at the thought of watching the heads of these newspapers go to the government and say, you know, come join us, come help us. I mean... Anybody who's been to journalism school, you know, would basically throw up their hands and say, yeah. I don't want to have the government telling me what to do. And if they, they're putting money into our pockets, they're going to have eventually have a say. Yeah, and the funny part about this is the column that we are t- chatting about that has got this whole thing started would actually make the case of, no, we don't want the government helping newspapers or the government helping the private TV stations. We want the government out of it, period. Just, you know, whatever is going to happen, uh, the government, th- the point that he's making is CBC has an unfair advantage. And so the, the question becomes, let, let's, and I think, Sue, it's, it's hard to not say the CBC has some kind of advantage when you've got a billion dollars to begin with. Whether it's unfair or not, that's an, an issue for debate. But how do you, looking at this thing, how do you then balance the field. If you're saying, if, if there are arguments being made 
that because CBC has such a huge head start with a billion-dollar grant from the government, should we be saying that our public broadcaster should not be able to solicit advertisements, that it should be like the BBC, and basically you're, you, you take the grant and you work with that and you leave the advertising dollars for the private sector? Or is there some other way that would actually seemingly make this work better? I'm really not sure. I mean, I am uh, a big uh, supporter of the BBC method of telling a television network, in this case the BBC, exactly how much they have to work with on an ongoing basis. In our country, unfortunately, it's going to depend on the stripes of the government on whether or not, how much CBC is going to have to operate with. And no, you know, I'm sure the head of any company would tell you, you can't do long-term planning, you can't make value decisions on what kind of programming you're going, to go, you're going to have on if you don't know how much you're going to have, you know, from year to year and in some cases from month to month. I think that when we saw a month and a half ago, how long ago was the Tragically Hip concert that was on CBC? I mean, we saw a, an event, a kind of thing that the CBC can still do really well, that, mm-hmm. that is unique I mean, I, I, CTV or Global or someone I'm sure could have done that as well, but it was a CBC thing and they did a great job with it. So we can see the things that CBC still is able to do. But what happens if there was no CBC now? Because, uh, Sue, at one time we had the railroad and we had CBC and the Postal Service, and those were the three things that tied Canadians together. Right. We now have internet. We now have satellite. We now have cable. We now have all these things. CBC's The National News... 35 million Canadians are not watching every time the National is on. So if it went away, what would happen? Boy, um, that is a really tough question to answer because if it was just the CBC National News disappearing, I mean, you're right. I mean, you told it off the top. I've had a long association with CBC. A large part of my career was spent with CBC. And I really believe and believed in the whole idea that was the first mandate for CBC, which was connecting this country, connecting Canadians from coast to coast. I get that. I mean, the fact that CBC got this money from the government, it didn't all go to CBC television. You've got a radio network, Mm. and I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel quite comforted in the fact that I can go to Winnipeg, or I can go to Halifax, or I can go to Vancouver, and I turn on, and I can turn on the local CBC station and hear voices that I'm familiar with, really, uh, really good program, and there are no commercials. So some people forget that when CBC lost Hockey Night in Canada, when they lost that big hockey contract, that used to support a lot of what CBC did. When that was gone, they had to have cutbacks. There was no, you know, there was no way around that. So... If the CBC national news disappeared, I would hope, I mean, you know, hope against hope, that there would be a lot of people who would be outraged. But I'm not sure in this day and age whether they have enough supporters that would be able to keep it on the air. I I just don't know. Um, But I, I really honestly believe the CBC tells some uniquely Canadian stories, and they still do a great job of that. Um, when you look at the private networks, you can also turn to an American station in a lot of cases and be watching the same thing with CBC. And, I, you know, I've got a kudos to them this season. I think they're really doing a bang-up job, like Kim's Convenience, for instance. 
Not sure you would see that on American television, maybe especially in this, you know, election year. I'm not sure. But they really do programming that I think is uniquely Canadian. Rick Mercer. I mean, you know, you may say, yeah, but that's comedy. But Rick Mercer is (laughs) truly Canadian. You know, I'm not sure what else to say about him. And the fact that his show has remained on CBC over all these years, I'm sure he had offers to go to private networks, etc. But um, I think that he honestly believes in that CBC message as well. I would encourage people to read the piece, and I would encourage people then to think about what Sue just said. Um, Again, the piece is in the National Post. Uh, The headline on it, you can find it if you just look it up. It is, uh, do something or we'll have the CBC and nothing else. Agree, disagree, but read it. Give it some thought. Uh, And Sue, I know that when you said you travel around the country and you hear familiar voices, I was going to say I didn't even realize CHML was played in some of those places because I know you only listen to CHML. Of course, of course. What can I, I say? I'm kidding. Sue Prestige. I, I listen when I'm home, babe. <laughs> uh, Sue Prestige from the Mohawk Journalism School and formerly of CBC and of Women's TSN and of how, how many other places? You've been, you've worked a lot of places. You've, you've covered you the gamut. sound like I can't hold a job here. No, 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 no. <laughs> In such demand that every place has hired you away from the other. Well, that's exactly what happened, Scott, and I'm so glad you told the listening audience that. <laughs> <laughs> Sue Prestige, appreciate the time as always. Thanks. All right, Scott. Take care. Uh, Sue, by the way, does have a very uh, long, distinguished career, especially in sports journalism, which, um, you know, there aren't a ton of women who have done the kinds of things that Sue has. And so it's, uh, she's, she's definitely carved out a, a career that is unique. But I would encourage you, as I did off the top with the LRT story with Margaret Skimba, that I would say, go and read these pieces. The worst thing that happens if you go and read something is that you disagree with it and you're forced to ask yourself, why am I disagreeing with it? And that then crystallizes your thinking and makes you understand why you agree or disagree with something. We do too much, all of us, we do too much of living in an echo chamber. We only want to read and hear the things we agree with. We want someone to just back up what we're saying. If you have an opinion, you want someone to tell you your opinion's right. It's good to find something else or to have someone tell you you're right, too, at times. That's that's fine, too. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.